You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. And we're back with an all new Keep It. This is Ira Madison III. I'm Louisa May Vertel. It's still Oscar season. I have to keep standing for Little Women. <laughs> and I'm Aida Osman. Yeah, Lewis, the only one being ridiculous over here. Technically, my name is Lewis, but any variation thereof, I'll accept. I'm ready for Oscar season to be over. I did just get back from Sundance, and I'm like already awash in new movies. Are you still feeling the residuals of it? How no, I'm awash in new movies. How was yeah. it? Uh, it was great. Good. It was great. I saw Zola. Oh, right. Oh, now, wow. wait, do you, trust, do you trust your opinions on these movies? Because whenever I get a reaction out of Sundance, we talk about this all the time. Yeah. It always ends up, they ended up being two and a half star movies, but we thought they were four star movies because everyone was cold and wanted to scream about something. Everyone's cold. You're also usually in a theater with... Um, Flax. Well, <laughs> most of the people who aren't critics are there, you know, sort of with people you know. Um, you're surrounded by the whole team. It's sort of like being at the premiere mm-hmm. of a film, and it basically is the premiere, and you are just sort of engendered to want to feel good for the film. I will say that I did have critical conversations with people about Zola. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, not, I'm excited not, for not, it. Not yeah, white critics. <laughs> um, so I do really enjoy it, despite whatever criticisms I do have mm-hmm. about it. I've also heard good things about Promising Young Woman. Mm-hmm, the Carrie Mulligan movie. Yeah. So um, Sort of a Me Too revenge situation. Yeah. Did you see the Taylor Swift documentary? I have not seen it yet. Fahrenheit 1989. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Americana. Uh, what a journey for her. I mean, I guess it's about time. I mean, yeah. think about how long ago we got part of me from Katy Perry. She's actually overdue. Yeah. Also, now we've had Beyonce and Gaga with Netflix documentaries. So right. who's next? Slowly waiting for a Rihanna documentary. Yeah. Do you think yeah. she'll serve? Will she give us an album? I know. Will she give us anything? Well, we're going ha- to need a Finding Richard Simmons-like podcast about her soon. Yeah. Come on back. Keep It is going to turn into Finding Rihanna. <laughs> 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 Finding R9. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a great show coming up for you today, but first we want to talk about the sad events of this Sunday. Kobe Bryant... His daughter Gianna and seven others died in a helicopter crash this past Sunday morning. Obviously, the news has been very heartbreaking, especially for Los Angeles. Living in this city, I've seen a lot of people having intense reactions. Mostly when I landed uh, from Sundance is when I opened the phone and the Mm. news was coming through. So it was a little surreal seeing everyone on a plane sort of opening their phones and finding out the news at once. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I was walking down the street when it happened, and the same thing happened for me, too. You could see it registering on everybody else's face, too. And it's a very particular feeling in L.A., as you said, because he's the rare athlete who his entire career was in L.A. It sort of mm-hmm. seemed like he would leave a couple of times. He didn't. It also just occurred to me how rare it is that we've had a celebrity of that magnitude pass away. It almost feels like 
you know, growing up, like, that would happen every couple of years or something. Yeah. But really, I mean, there's not been one to me since, like, Robin Williams, where we mm-hmm. all just had to actually stop and say, this is really, this really is crazy. Or maybe Prince. I'd yeah. say Prince, yeah. Michael yeah. Jackson. And this was very similar to the Aaliyah situation back in, I believe it was 2001. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, Unfortunately, because of the nature of death, you know, mm-hmm. dying in a helicopter crash, and unfortunately because of the reports coming in that a lot of the helicopters by the LAPD were grounded that day. And, and they told had to not get to fly, yeah. and told not to fly and they sort of had to get special clearance for this helicopter to fly. So it does unfortunately remind you of Aaliyah, yeah, yeah. JFK Jr. It was very, the way I found out was right at 10 a.m. when it happened and I saw the first report. So I kind of got to watch the discrepancies and the errors because I was watching it all unfold. So at first it was, we thought Rick Fox had died with him and then we thought that like a slew of other people had died with him. So it was a very frustrating time to see all of these news outlets racing to get information out without actually having facts. Right, so let's talk about that first because I feel like that is one of the unusual things as opposed to sort of when Michael Jackson died mm-hmm. or Whitney or something. We got news reports, but they felt definitive, right? And you maybe didn't want to believe it, but you were like, okay, this is the news coming in. Unfortunately, I read the Kobe thing, and then, yes, there were reports that said all the kids were on right. the helicopter. Reports saying his wife Vanessa was on the helicopter. The Rick Fox thing, as you mentioned. And it's something just weird now about this Twitter era where it's, Everyone is rushing to get information out so they can be the first to get likes or retweets, I guess. Mm -hmm. And then there's obviously people who are just making up things. Truly. Well, also there's something about TMZ reporting at first, which does remind me of the Michael Jackson death situation where the news came out and then it was still question mark, question mark, question mark for the next hour afterwards. Because TMZ gets their information from like people who sell them tips mm-hmm. and things. So this was gross in that the family hadn't even been notified yet. Right. TMZ That's the frustrating knew. part as well, oh, yeah. Correct. Um, but TMZ rarely gets something like that wrong. So mm-hmm. you knew that was correct. But then the surrounding information was what was suspect. And that's such a frustrating moment in media in the 2020s now. Even though we get information quickly, there's still immediate disarray, no yeah. matter what, seemingly. Uh, I do want to get into the conversations swirling around this too because I feel like every obituary and piece about Kobe is titled How to Mourn This Quote Complicated Mm -hmm. Star. Uh, And complicated feels like it has become the buzzword this week for talking about someone who was not a perfect person. And this is of course referring to the 2003 rape allegations against Kobe Bryant. Uh, The charges were eventually dropped and we are assuming that he settled in civil court, um, but we obviously don't know the particulars of that. Wild to me that people think they need a guide to mourn a problematic death. Like, at most, we should be feeling very, very sympathetic for the woman that now has to see this man be celebrated in the news and honored over and over and over again. Alicia Keys at the Grammy said that he's the man who built this city, like the city's built on Kobe Bryant. And that may be true, but then again... We, we should be able to have nuanced understandings of the grief about him. Of course. And also, yeah. by the way, I think even more to the point, you should be able to bring up the rape allegations. It's, yes. like, it's like, it's not, people are talking about like, oh, complicated reckoning. It's like, it's not really a reckoning so much as it is appropriate to bring this up. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I'm not talking about giving this a pass whatsoever, but I will say that every obituary and piece about Kobe Bryant has brought up the rape. So it's not as if anyone was ignoring it. 
I is think that true? Like every yeah, single one I, brings it up? Everyone I've read yeah. has brought it up. Yeah. Um, even pieces from people who are like from Jamel Hill who wrote about it for The Atlantic, the Kobe I knew, she mentions mm-hmm. the rape in it. And she mentions particularly how his perceptions from that case of how he felt that he was falsely accused are what made their first initial interaction happen because he was first on the side of giving George Zimmerman the benefit of the doubt in the Trayvon Martin um, situation before they had sort of a back and forth and he came to realize that he should have been seeing it from the other way. And she credits the Trayvon thing and then the also the um, Eric Garner situation of what shifted him into caring about social justice. And I will say that there's also an incident that someone tweeted about where um, he was fined um, for using the word fag against a ref once. And after learning how wrong that was, he sort of course corrected and started working with Glad and doing other work to like combat homophobia. Did something actually proactive as opposed to just Mm -hmm. apologizing. So I think that this is all to say that Nuanced conversations are the kind that we should be having. And I don't think that Twitter is a place where you can ever even have those conversations, to be honest. Not just because, obviously, his survivor will have to see all that information Mm -hmm. all the time, but it's there are rape victims and survivors who are fans of Kobe, you know? And so there are people who are constantly holding two different things in their brain at once. And that's difficult for some people, too contemplate mm-hmm. yeah there like has to be levels of redemption i think for you to understand mm-hmm. to be able to like you know have a cogent argument about whether we should be grieving kobe in such a big and national way but i mm-hmm. also want to point out to what you were saying and also what you were saying on the flip side is that some people are still being punished for having these conversations about kobe mm-hmm. um i saw recently that a woman who was working at the washington post got suspended for tweeting about what was going on not even posting an article but posting another article from the daily beast from i think like mm-hmm. earlier a couple earlier years ago yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Why do things like that happen as well? No, that's a ridiculous situation. And then the the Washington Post justification for suspending her was that she was tweeting something outside of her beat, which if you know any journalist, they're tweeting stories all the time (laughs) that they didn't necessarily write. Don't tweet about Riverdale, girl. (laughs) Yeah, right. You are not on Teen Beat. (laughs) The Tiger Beat. Tiger Beat. (laughs) Beat. Uh, That obviously is gross. And it also just reminds me, too, of how I felt particularly during the Nipsey um, hustle thing, Mm -hmm. you know? There was a lot of public grieving, a lot of he built this city, what he's doing, et cetera. And even when we talked about it on the show, it was uncomfortable even wanting to talk about the homophobic aspects of his life that made it me not want to particularly celebrate him. And thinking about Kobe, I will also just say that One thing that I hope the media does talk about is how the media was complicit in sort of his rehabilitation. Not everyone gets that sort of rehabilitation, yes. And I feel like because he was a basketball player, because he was really good at it, he was helped to sort of become a better person, Mm -hmm. right? The first moments I really remember thinking about Kobe at all, he used to be sort of like an arrogant basketball player because he started at 18. And then I remember the rape case and that as a young kid was so weird hearing about because I feel like conversations in the barbershop, anywhere I went, people were constantly being like, that woman's lying. 
et yeah. cetera, mm-hmm. you know? And that's something that you grew up with and that's a part of rape culture that I felt like was sort of helped to sweep her under the rug and get back to the Kobe that people wanted. Yeah, You know, he had signed his deal with Nike before that happened and they just basically had to wait a few years before they could start doing commercials with him. Uh, and I felt like America was very quick to jump back to the Kobe that we love, uh, which I feel like would not happen if that situation were to happen today. Mm. Just because of the way we are talking about things with Me Too and et cetera. It's crazy that I will always remember where I was when I heard about this, even though it's yeah. like I'm not an athlete in any way or, yeah. or care about sports, whatever. My takeaway from this situation just on a personal basis was it reminded me of how before the Trump administration, celebrity deaths were like the thing you could count on to make you confront mortality. Uh-huh. <laughs> now we just have yeah. that happen all the time. Yeah. It was almost like this throwback yeah. feeling of like, oh, my God, you can die, you know, randomly, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's and it was, you know, Madeline Kahn in 1999 or Prince in 2016 who would make you think about that. Yeah. I might be projecting here. <laughs> that's OK. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, lastly, I feel like one of the things that is obviously saddest about this is his daughter dying um, and also many of the other um, kids who were on the helicopter, too. And so I feel like it's weird just trying to navigate grief on Twitter. And it just reminds you that a place like that sort of has no reverence for death. Yeah. Or you shouldn't seek it out there, even if you get it. Yes. <laughs> um, we have a very packed episode today. We will be talking about the Grammys. What a spectacle. Sure. Uh, a lot going on there. Behind the scenes and at the ceremony. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will also be getting into the American Dirt controversy. Mother of God. I know. Yeah. Oprah. What what happened? Oprah is... Quoth Hillary Clinton, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll also be joined by Julissa Arce for that conversation so we can really get into the specifics of why Oprah picking this book was a mess. Mm. Then we will be joined by Casey Lemons, director of Eve's Bayou. Yes. And Harriet, and we will dig into some of those controversies surrounding Harriet this award season. As Lizzo said, welcome to the Grammys, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) The weekend marked the 62nd Grammy Awards, and while the night was largely a somber occasion, uh, because the death of Kobe Bryant happened the day of the ceremony and staples where the event happened was also surrounded by you know Kobe fans um so it was weird trying to go on with a music ceremony while all this was happening so I feel like it affected a large part of the show uh there was also a tribute to Nipsey But the show ended with 18-year-old Billie Eilish sweeping all the major categories, and it sort of felt like a very, very weird 
Grammy show. I mm-hmm. kind of agree. Well, first of all, not about, just for Billy. Yeah. No. Yeah. Here's the thing. I like this Billie Eilish person and her brother. I call them the ASMR pinters. Oh yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Phineas is. Very cute, yeah, and adorable. a lovely producer, and also and one producer of the year, by the way, and yeah. he's eleven years old. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, and also a former Glee cast member. Don't right. forget, he Don't was forget. he was in the final season. Uh, and I read this interview from 2015 from TV Line, written by Andy Swift, where he talked about the fact that his sister thought it was really cool that he was on Glee because she's a Glee super fan. Uh-huh. And this is before we knew who Billie Eilish was. So now I'm thinking of her in the context of standing Glee and then coming <laughs> to write this Ouija board music. Yeah. <laughs> Again, happy for her, happy for her brother. Did she really need a Lauren Hill slash Carol King type year where she won every single award? To me, it felt a little bit like an act of desperation on on the part of Grammy voters who wanted to show they liked the young thing, yeah. the mm-hmm. new thing. We're still with women. Yeah, We're still, still right with here. women. And specifically, I'm disappointed that she won Song of the Year. Yes. Would you call Bad Guy the epitome of a songwriting credit? I wouldn't. You know, like, it's a lot of words that rhyme with bad. <laughs> yeah. The Bad Guy win was also more ridiculous because Little Nas X was there. And we just went through a year <laughs> where Old Town Road trounced Bad Guy on yeah. the radio for an entire year. Yeah. Like, kept her from getting that number uh-huh. one constantly. Not even talking about the fact that his Grammy win wasn't even aired. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, because they have two ceremonies. At least when the Oscars does that, they will sometimes air a clip. Um, no clip. Or the Tonys, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I went back and forth on it. I was like, should she have won Song of the Year? Because it felt like to me, if I close my eyes and think about 2019, it's Old Town Road playing on repeat. Mm-hmm. But I think if anything, it would have been more likely that Old Town Road should have won Record of the Year than Song of the Year. Mm-hmm. But I do understand why both of you have the argument that maybe that it should have gone to Lil Nas. And I wanted him to get something. Yeah. Something more visibly. I also think like, look, not to usher back in the old guard at the Grammys, but... I feel like you could have maybe thrown Tanya Tucker, the song of the year thing. Again, just the, the act of writing a song, verse to verse. and like like I feel like lyrics are a critical element of song of yeah. the year. Am I wrong? Mm-hmm. Yes. So. Um, there's also the controversy surrounding Deborah Dugan uh, being removed. What a crazy and somehow under-discussed controversy. Yeah. yeah she replaced Neil Portnow, who famously, well, infamously, had that women need to step up comment and then he was removed and then she replaced him and then she was removed like two weeks before the ceremony and gave statements about how she found irregularities in the nominating process for the Grammys and we really did not talk about any of that I feel like if that had happened before the Oscars there'd be riots yeah definitely I think a big problem of it also was that a woman of color hadn't won album of the year in this 21st century Right. Yeah. That is um, very, very strange. Yeah. Um, also, part of this controversy was that she specifically named two albums that allegedly would have been an, among the Album of the Year nominees and then were tossed out and replaced by two, uh, I'll guess, younger artists. They were supposed to be Madonna's Madam X, which <laughs> I saw the tour, I own the album, I have the merch. I would have skipped that nominee this year <laughs> for me. I don't see it for her. <laughs> no. And then also caution by Mariah Carey, which I actually think is a little overrated amongst gay men. It's how I, stand. I approach I'm that sorry. album. Sorry, okay. With caution is how I approach that album. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I will say a no-no to both of you. Okay. <laughs> and why don't you 
get the fuck out. <laughs> uh, I think that is what the Grammys needed, though, right? How fun would it have been to have Madame X and Caution nominated mm-hmm. and Mariah and Madonna at the ceremony? Right. I feel like the Grammys obviously will always have people there who are huge in the music industry, but in the way that we discuss any other award ceremony, we don't know much about the nomination process. We don't yeah. know much about the voting body, and it just seems so nebulous and weird, and it also doesn't sort of reward people the way that, say, the Oscars would, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, the Oscars are racist, too, <laughs> but the Grammys are hella racist, at least when we talk about things like a parasite being nominated, you know, or really respecting people's work like Scorsese, you know, and um, Tarantino. You you don't see that reflected in the Grammys, you know? It's these conversations where, like, Beyonce losing to Beck, Lemonade then losing to. It just feels like the Grammys are not in touch with culture in a way that other awards shows maybe feel like one or two years behind the culture, right? Mm-hmm. And when they miss something, then we get weird years where they course correct and then we'll award someone with something. But the Grammys doesn't even do that. I feel like yeah. the Grammys feel obligated to award juggernauts because there are so few of them making and selling music nowadays. Uh-huh. So when you have a Billie Eilish who actually does sort of take over on the album front, like what can you do but reward it? It reminds me of like when Fearless by Taylor Swift won album of the year. Which, it, I'm not saying that's a bad album or anything, but it's almost like they had to do it because it was the emerging juggernaut thing of the year. Mm-hmm. But that's what the Billboard Awards are for. Correct. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. rewarding people for album sales. And if the Grammys does that, they will constantly be rewarding the youngest people at their ceremony because, unfortunately, like, young people, pop music, like, what sells is always going to be something like, a Taylor Swift, a Billie Eilish coming along, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not getting into the albums that maybe weren't juggernauts but were cultural conversations, really did something for music, Mm -hmm. et cetera. But that's, of course, a safer pose for them to take than what people usually perceive about the Grammys, which is that they run extremely old. And the Mm -hmm. weird Uh Herbie Hancock tribute to Joni Mitchell wins album. (laughs) (laughs) It makes me, it's that conversation again, like the way film is treated and the way the Oscars treat the what's nominated is there's a certain gravity to it. Like they're studied. These things are revered. Or like, yeah, so then again, when I think about Tyler, the creator, who won Best Rap Album of the Year, whose album, Igor, he's now complained hasn't been treated with the respect that he believes it should be treated with. Igor's such a fucking amazing album. Flawless. Uh, he, when he was interviewed after his win, he talked about how hip-hop isn't respected at the Grammys. He talked about how just because he's black, his music will be put in like an urban or like hip-hop category. And it's like, when you listen to Tyler's music, when you listen to Igor, mm-hmm. I wouldn't classify it as classic hip-hop. Maybe R and B, maybe alternative, but like it is doing something completely different. And the Grammys doesn't recognize that though. I was grossed out by how they played him off too. Yeah. Um, the music during with, the end of his speech was so extremely with rude. his mom up there and just really talking about something really important mm-hmm. culturally. Um the disrespect to him and Little Nas X at the show were just sort of gross to yeah. me mostly because they also had the best performances <laughs> yeah. i thought yeah i thought i thought Him tyler... and that demented sia wig oh yeah <laughs> tyler's performance was 
amazing. Love and, that. And, it's going down as one of my favorite award show performances. The ever. BTS Lil Nas Soul Town Road. I remember almost crying at that <laughs> point. Like I was like, this is so adorable. All of them on stage together. Nas coming out to co-sign. Yes. Well, how do you feel about that? Well, I, I like it, it. I like it in the sense that Nas is a straight man in hip hop. Yes. You know, who is regarded as one of the old guards of hip hop, and sort of him coming out, jumping on a remix, and co-signing a black gay artist mm-hmm. is just really sort of, it hit me in yeah. my heart in 2020. And I get it because both of their names are Nas, yeah. right? Um, do I love seeing Nas on stage, really, after what Khalees told us about um, mm-hmm. him doing the hurt? No. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely bittersweet. Yeah, it's, it's, bittersweet it's, it's one sure. of those things where, here's an abuser, uh, yeah. on stage being celebrated, but also thinking about what it means for Lil Nas X and his acceptance in the hip-hop community. And yeah. as always, there are two members of BTS who have Aaron Carter haircuts at every given moment. Uh, their commitment to that style choice is <laughs> shocking, and I guess I applaud it. I don't know the names of anybody in BTS. Now, Red Velvet, on the other hand, <laughs> oh, yeah. my K-pop girls, I know their names. <laughs> what um, did you think of the Demi Lovato performance? I liked it. I it it was one of those moments sort of like whenever Gaga does a performance that people on social media are always shocked that this person can sing. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not shocked about that. No, well, we're yeah. not shocked about we're that. Not. We're yeah. truly not. We're not, but people on social media, every time Gaga sings, it's always, or oh Miley my God, Cyrus, she can yes. sing. And it's like, Demi, people were like, I didn't know she had these pipes. I'm she like, where the fuck have you pipes. been? My girlfriend tried to skip through it, and I was like, no, no, no. We're going to watch every second of this. If you know Demi Lovato the way we know Demi Lovato, her songs, her music, her Nightingale, I think about that Stone Cold? Are you serious? Don't Come even. Come on. But and I'm, I'm very excited now that she's been given in Grammy recognition because I don't know if Demi in the past has released at a project that I've been like this deserves a Grammy but she's consistently released tracks that are absolutely flawless her voice is amazing and has been for years I think Cool for the Summer deserved Pop Vocal of the Year the right, year the... it was out that was, a, that was a song yeah I like mm-hmm. that song a lot yeah this performance so it was her first major outing since 2018 she wrote the song before her uh, the, the famous incident where she was hospitalized and almost died yeah um i haven't ever really thought of her as much of a lyricist but the line in that song i feel stupid when i sing sung like that to me was the most memorable part of the night i loved her mm-hmm. lyrics yeah, yeah. No, uh, i've always thought that demi's been a great songwriter who's never really gotten the respect that she deserves only because she is in you know, pop music, yeah. um, but not in pop music the way that sort of like a Carly Rae Jepsen is, you know, or like a Joni Mitchell, you know, or like a Lana Del Rey. Uh-huh. Um, she's more in the, oh, I'm in the Britney Miley sort of sphere, right? Mm-hmm. But she also never had a song that sort of carried over like a Toxic or like a We Don't Stop, you know, where made her like, someone that the gay is like stand yeah. and made her like it's an like, icon. She has songs that people like, but none is super definitively her and stands out as like her, you know, uh, watermark moment in yeah. pop culture. So she weirdly wades in the middle. Yeah, right, exactly. The Nipsey Hustle tribute I was very emotional about because as an Eritrean American, it was my first time seeing traditional Eritrean garb like on a stage especially a Grammy stage so that moment moved me a lot but then again it comes with the thing that we talked about earlier of Nipsey Hussle and the homophobia and the whole Kobe Bryant and mourning of it all you Mm -hmm. know 
I mean, unfortunately, that is just always going to happen yeah. at the Grammys, right? Because I feel like, is Me Too ever really going to hit the music industry? Mm. <laughs> right. By the way, how crazy is it that uh, Dave Chappelle has now won the comedy album Grammy three years in a row? And that nigga ain't coming to the oh. show. I know. Why do you keep giving it to him? Isn't it weird? Yeah. That, uh, we were, I was thinking earlier, <laughs> it's so weird that Ellen DeGeneres has never won this, but then I realized she's only released two comedy albums, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Comedy album is a very specific thing to release. As uh, in... As in it's weird how we position comedy within the Grammys. Yeah, I was thinking about that just in the terms of comedy album, in the terms uh, um, like cast recordings, right? Mm-hmm. And it's things that are Grammy nominated, but you think about them even showing up. Like I remember the only time we saw like the cast recordings one was when Hamilton mm-hmm. won that one year, right? Because yeah. Lin-Manuel Miranda was there. But is anyone else who's winning a Grammy for that showing up? Yeah, are they Hades leaving? Town. Are, I mean, yeah, it costs are they leaving? A lot of money to go to the Grammys. Yeah, you know? and also to you can't really leave New York yeah. and go win because you have a show mm-hmm. Sunday, two shows sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you know what, a random thing I'd like to shout out? I don't mean to belabor this conversation, but Billie Eilish as a fashionista. I mean, truly, did she invent that kind of look herself? It doesn't remind me of almost anything. Somebody told me she dresses like Carlos Mencia. (laughs) (laughs) She she dresses to me a little bit like Sonny Bono at home in the 60s. Like somebody who's the record producer for the Monkees or something. It feels a little bit like the goths that we went to school with Mm -hmm. in high school, except it's designer. It's like... If goss we went to school with in the 2000s were wearing Gucci. Had money, yeah. Right. Yeah. She's she's um, publicly acknowledged before that she deliberately hides her body because she wants it to be about her music and her talent and doesn't want to be sexualized in any way, especially because when she first started releasing music, she was a minor. Mm-hmm. There was mm-hmm. no reason for people to have any conversations around her body. But I do love the way she dresses, right. and a lot of young girls are popping out dressing just like her now, too. And I also think like she has an impressive sense of normalcy about her. When she was accepting all these awards, you actually saw her before, I believe, the last one, which was Record of the Year. She muttered to herself, like, please don't let it be me. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. or something like she had had enough, basically. Without being disrespectful, she's never above it or too entranced by the mania of being famous. Mm-hmm. She has a specific kind of zen energy that I hope is real, because I think it, it will yeah. have to sustain her when she does, you know, a second project, which the pressure must be overwhelming. Right, and I even remember that moment, too, where she was like, this means a lot to me. You know, yeah. I know I'm normally sort of like chill and like sarcastic about things, but she had to point out that like <laughs> she really did enjoy getting this um award and it meant a lot to her um some other random things at the show how many years in a row are we gonna have a prince tribute it is shocking <laughs> because each year diminishing returns can i say oh, but i love this usher one you know I what i this. can't decide what i think of it because he both is right for a prince tribute and that he's you know an exceptional dancer but yeah. also there's no other way to put it about a ninth of the artist is prince yeah. so it's almost like i was watching I don't know, a Dancing with the Stars performance Mm -hmm. about Prince as opposed to something. And I love Usher. And I love, by the way, Sheila E. standing in the background, of course. (laughs) Um, FKA Twigs just sort of there. Popping up. Well, I like to see FKA Twigs. I don't like to hear FKA Twigs. So this was a good, this was a perfect. (laughs) Big day for you. Shut up, Aida. (laughs) Iris face. I love when she popped up into his arms. I was like, damn, that's exactly what she needs to be doing. Doesn't she do it for you? That was also strange because she released a statement afterwards saying she would have loved to sing as a part of it. I'm sure she did. I'm sure she did. She was just just over there like a Halloween ornament. Yeah, strange. 
By the way, again, also, Prince is one of these people like <laughs> Dolly Parton, who gets toasted at every, you know, country award show every year, whatever. He had more than three songs, people. Does it have to be When Doves Cry and Kiss every time? We've That's talked it. about that before. I'm, yeah. I'm tired of it. Uh, and speaking of FAA wanting to sing, maybe we could have let her sing during one of the many times Camila Cabello was on stage. Mm-hmm. Right. Why? Oh my God, when she sang that song to her dad. First of all, everybody on every text thread was having the same conversation like, is, is this the about dad Sean? alive? Is the dad alive? Is oh. it about is Sean? Dad, I know, yes. truly. And then at the first. dad was right there. Excuse me. And especially <laughs> on this Kobe Bryant night at the same time, it was very visceral. Like, I could yeah. really feel it. Yeah. It was very intense. I was but... like, is this Father's Day? I was <laughs> like, was this, did they come up with this is just this... because of mm-hmm. the Kobe situation? A daughter singing to their dad? I don't know why it happened, and I was just very confused the entire time. If yeah. I'm singing a song directly to my dad, the song is going to be called Can You Help Me With My Taxes? <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay? <laughs> it's not going to be whatever she was doing. <laughs> and they also did introduce it as singing to a man she loves. Yeah, right. that's true. So we, I thought it was going to be about Sean. Mm-hmm. It was very confusing to me. Speaking of the person who introduced that song... I would be remiss if we did not bring up the fact that Alicia Keys was higher than the heavy side layer. <laughs> she appeared to just be so chill. I enjoy her hosting, to be honest. I, I don't. Yeah. Go on. Usually well, I don't. I, this time I did. This I, time I really I did. I think that her hosting I enjoy more than her singing. Mm-hmm. I will say that she seemed like a cult leader on yes. Sunday. Yeah. Just so Chill. Also, by the way, Alicia, not everything is amazing. You can call everything amazing. <laughs> it's not. You're lying. This she amazing had a... performance from Billie Eilish. <laughs> I really love Bad Guy. It's a great song. Amazing. Amazing, amazing performer. Also, she always feels this weird obligation to like explain to us what music is and what we yeah, use yeah, it for. Yeah, it's yeah. like, trust me on this, I know. Girl, I know. Trust me. This is a... Uh, Amazing night with everything going on with remembering Kobe. You can remember that music. It brings us together. People (laughs) make it on instruments. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the real winner of the whole night was her baby hairs. Did you see them? The baby hairs hairs were on point. Yes, they were on point. (laughs) And her, um, her, which... I guess, I mean, there's oh, her name. Oh, hers baby hairs, too. I yeah. know. She's really coming for Alicia Keys. Not deliberately, but could you imagine <laughs> Alicia Keys in the wings watching this woman play piano and singing On her key? ass? I know. Not all in A minor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not over how awesome what H-E-R stands for yeah. is having everything revealed. Know. You know that feeling when you have everything revealed. Everything. <laughs> and the irony of her constantly yes. wearing sunglasses. I'm like, bitch, right. nothing yeah. is revealed. I don't know what you look like. Sweeps, sweeps on days of our lives when everything <laughs> is revealed. I'm like, Kristen? That's what she's referring to. In a mask? Yeah. It's for you, Ira. <laughs> no, I really do enjoy her. And listen, mm-hmm. I do enjoy Alicia Keys. Um, she is constantly in different sides of my brain. Sometimes I'm exhausted by her. Yeah. Sometimes I really enjoy her. Uh, I just she's like still doing a... the no makeup thing mm-hmm. with still makeup. I know, yeah. So I feel like as a host, she is less a host and more a high school guidance counselor. And I just... Th- I the... felt like she was really fun last year. Maybe. I just find the vibe way too earnest, as so much as to no sentiment is actually expressed. Do you miss LL Cool J and his Kangol hat? <laughs> LL and, and that less of neck. two. Because I feel like I'm going to find out one day he's the most hardcore Republican who ever lived. <laughs> I wouldn't even be surprised. You know? I truly wouldn't. Not the star of UPN's In the House. Never. 
You know, I had a revelation about Rosalia, though, because I was sitting mm. there watching Rosalia perform with my friend who is a dark-skinned Dominican woman. And I love Rosalia, and I love her new album, and I love everything yeah. about her. But the girl I was with was going on about how, you know, this is a sp- light-skinned Spanish woman who's kind of appropriating the sounds of bachata and um, flamenco and these kind of, like, song genres that come from a darker skin nation, you know, and it just kind of put things into perspective for me because I was like, oh, Rosalia. It was like the very Janine Cummins of it all. Yeah, you know seeing what I mean? her being celebrated at the actual Grammys when most Latinx performers are relegated to the Latin Grammys. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, it was frustrating. But that being said, her outfit was amazing. And she does have bops. <laughs> and she does. She does have bops. She's an amazing musician. <laughs> See, if I Janine Cummins' book had bops if it was good <laughs> yeah we'd stand we really truly would uh, cute ceremony overall yeah. they sometimes went like 30 or 40 minutes without an award which bothers me but at the same time i think we just have to own the fact that music award shows are just going to become medleys basically and that the awards will happen afterwards or in an email or something it didn't feel as long to me only because when i got back from Sundance that day, the power was out in my building. Mm. So oh. I couldn't watch the show until it was on CBS All Access. And at that point, it was a brisk two and a half hours. Oh, I bet. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No commercials. Yeah. No commercials. Anyway, when we're back, we're joined by Casey Lemons. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes. When you see footprints in the sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams robe. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because, by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's, like, pretty mild outside, and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. It is always an honor to be joined by, as Lewis said, and I agree, a legend. Truly. Hell uh, yes. Hello. Hi, Casey Lemons. Hi. Hi. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. 
Yes. You're, when someone says the name Casey Lemons to me, I jump back in my brain. Like the Wikipedia of my brain is like picking through all the Which interesting one? things about you. And the, num- the first thing I think of is how weird is it that you were in the two easily best horror movies of the early 90s? Yeah. How crazy is that? That's, yeah. We're talking about Silence of the Lambs and Candyman. Candy yeah. No, it was kind of my gig for a while, you know? I was like uh, that genre, you know, I call it Black Girl Best Friend. And yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. Very particular. Yes. Speaking of Black Girl Best Friend. Hot damn Clarice. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, <laughs> Clarice, don't go there. Um, speaking of Black Girl Best Friend, you were mine when I watched Silence of the Lambs for the first time because I was like, oh, you can wear your hair like that. Black girls can wear just twists? Okay. And I haven't stopped since. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I really, truly have I mean, stopped. I got to give them credit because I went into the audition like that. So Jonathan okay. and Demi saw me like that. And he's yeah. like, you can wear it like that. Be you. Mm-hmm. Is Jonathan Dummy somebody who just left a lasting impact on you as a director? I mean, he's just somebody I think of who, he's one of those crazy people where it doesn't make sense that he made both, you know, Something Wild and Rachel Getting Married, or yeah. for example. So I just feel like there must be some mystical quality about him. Honestly, I think after Something Wild, um, he went through a kind of transformation of his own, and he, he started working in a different way. I mean, that much he he told me, but... um. Yeah, it's funny. When I was acting, I didn't study directors, but Mm -hmm. I did think about it later, how I would like to be on set because he was very focused, he was very present, and he Mm -hmm. was very excited. You Mm -hmm. know, just a wonderful presence to be around, kind of a galvanizing presence. And so I did think about that, you know, he never seemed, he he always seemed right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was crazy about JD, like, uh, he was a friend of mine and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's seen, his warmth seems legendary. Yeah. yeah. So you're kind of subconsciously taking notes, but were you ever in your mind thinking, I'm going to be a director too? Not exactly. It was so, uh, you know, Byzantine. Like, it, it, yeah. it, you know, my path was very, you know, I went to film school and I thought I was going to make documentaries. I uh, came out of film school with a little doc, you know, and, um, and then I was writing at the same time and then I wrote my first piece and I wasn't anticipating directing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of happened much faster than, than I thought. So I didn't fall into it. I orchestrated it in some ways and in some ways it, it went in directions that I couldn't have anticipated. So I wasn't. I was trying to hit my marks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I remember my lines like, yeah. you know. Everybody else. And, of course, that first piece is East Bayou, yeah. which is, I mean, talk about legendary, talk about iconic. Sure. I love that film. And I remember, was it Roger Ebert? Uh, I was just going to bring that up. That was, one that of was your the early first, champions. That, yeah, That was one of the first times I remember watching Roger Ebert and being like, you are definitely introducing me. Because that was his favorite movie of that year, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. And he just introduced it to somebody like me. I was like nine years old in the Midwest. Like, I definitely wouldn't, that wouldn't have been brought to my attention otherwise, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit just about how you approached Samuel L. Jackson to join <laughs> this? Because I do know you, you've you talked before about how you had had this independent film and you were sort of pitching it and nobody wanted it. And then you got a star attached to it and then still nobody did. But then Trimark called and um, yeah. sort of changed the course of the film. Yeah, the, the, the one correction I would make is I had the script. Okay, the script. So I wrote the script and so I was going out with something that was very interesting to people which is okay. why I got the meetings. Otherwise yeah. I never yeah. would have been in those rooms, right? Mm-hmm. But the reason I got the meetings was because the script people were really interested in it. Like, who is this person that wrote this script? Yeah. So they would want to meet me, but that was kind of like, you know, um, you know, I don't have anything at 3.30. Maybe we should call that, that woman in there who yeah, <laughs> yeah, wrote yeah. the weird script. Yeah. I think a lot of people met me that weren't that serious about making the film. Yeah. Um, Sam, I had the script, 
And then I m- made a short film called Dr. Hugo, which was kind of like a little teaser in some ways for mm-hmm. Eve's Bayou, even though it had its own integrity. Mm-hmm. There was a sexy doctor who pays a house call on a, a married woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the married woman's Victoria Rowell, and she's yes. very, very gorgeous. I and, loved seeing Miss Drusilla yeah, herself yeah. in that. And Sam saw the short and read the script. And at the time, Samuel was a character. You know, he was, he was big in his character acting. And, um, you know, I think he wanted to be that leading man, you know, the the, the lady killer that um, Louis Batiste was. And um, so, I mean, I think he was interested in just stretching in that direction. And Samuel's always been great at doing like a big movie than a small movie, you know. Mm. I mean, especially one of his underrated performances is in another favorite of mine from yours, uh, Caveman's Valentine. Yeah, yeah. Um, his, he in that plays um, a Juilliard um, pianist who then becomes homeless um, and he's schizophrenic. And I mean, that performance is wild too. And just full of all of the mysticism that I feel like you imbue into your films. Yeah. Uh, and that takes us also to Harriet as well. Yeah. Can we talk about how you approached telling the story of Harriet Tubman and being able to put your own sensibilities into it. I remember so much of the conversation before it even came out, um, you know, about this, oh, Harriet Tubman's a psychic, what's going on here? Uh, But watching it, it did feel very much like it was in your universe. It's almost like I discovered that she was in my universe. Uh-huh. You know, I discovered that she and I were kind of speaking a similar language. So there was that real connection with the character. And that was something I kind of discovered in the research. I mean, I knew about it on a cursory level, like we knew about Harriet, you know. Yeah. Um, but in really diving into the research, and, you know, that was her. And then I realized I had a choice. I could either pull back from that mm-hmm. or move towards it. And that if I was pulling back from it, it would be because I was frightened of it. And at this point in my life, I just decided not to be scared of it. And it's the Harriet Tubman story. So mm-hmm. if it's the Harriet Tubman story in her words, what she said to everybody, all of her contemporaries, and that's the way she tells it. And so I decided to take her word for it. How did it feel as a filmmaker sort of promoting this film and I guess, a new era where there was so much conversation around your film before it had even come out, Mm -hmm. just based on the trailer alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I knew within, I don't know, 85 seconds of saying yes. So maybe it was the 85 seconds before I said yes that the whole world of conversation occurred to me. And so once I said yes, I kind of didn't think about it anymore. You know, I had that like uh, a panic attack for about, you know, a minute and a half. And I thought, this is going to be, I'm going to get everything from everybody, all kinds of controversy, all kinds of conversation. And I just decided to go for it. And so after that, I just tried to keep still and keep focused on Harriet herself because I was having a very strong connection with her. Mm-hmm. And um, and just focused on, on the work and my intention as opposed to the chatter. Mm-hmm. As a black woman, I find myself constantly um, fearful of the things I'm going to put out because it has to be seen you know, through the lens of... Oh, you better make sure you get everything right. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you just said that you felt like you just focus on Harriet and telling her story as truthfully as you could. But did you ever find yourself in moments where you hesitated or doubted what you were saying and the narratives that you were trying to put out? Not really. I mean, I felt that my research was very, very strong. I felt my intentions were very, very good. Yeah. And so I just kind of stayed with that. There's too much to think about it. You're doing one of the most beloved, such an admired character, and yet somebody we really didn't know that much about. And so I didn't overthink it. And in general, 
I don't because it would stifle my art. So I really try and um, do what I think is the right thing, do what I think is true to what I'm trying to communicate and what, what I think the story deserves. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know how to function that way. Uh, it, yeah. w- it would really paralyze me. Why wasn't there a definitive telling of Harriet Tubman until now? Every major figure in American history has been covered time and time again. Yeah. What is it about this story that in 2020 we're still saying like, finally now we can watch this story on, on the big screen? Well, you know, Cicely Tyson had played Harriet Tubman before mm-hmm. uh, on television. And when we think, I mean, sometimes we have to go back to that period in time, which was actually very progressive. Yeah, right. And, and mm-hmm. look at all the work that was being done then and say, wow, we pulled back from that. So maybe there was a time and the pendulum shifted the other way, you know, and we didn't get more of her where it felt like such an obvious choice. I mean, I think for one thing, the industry has, has, you know, this is no secret, been reluctant to have a black woman lead in a starring role, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, um, that just to convince people that that is um, actually commercially viable, you know, Mm -hmm. has been a long conversation. And I think we are at a very interesting time in the country where this story becomes very pertinent and that the time was right in many ways right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, you know, a black woman lead, you have Cynthia Erivo in this film, uh, nominated for an Academy Award for her work in this film. Uh, two, in fact. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. two. Tell us just sort of what drew you to Cynthia and how this feels now, um, seeing her celebrated for this work that you've created. Well, what drew me to her was in my first meeting with the producers, I was in Daniela Toplin Lumberg's office, and she showed me this newly surfaced photograph, which I had never seen, of younger Harriet, that image that we use at the end of the film. And she put it next to Cynthia, a, a very unadorned mm. photograph of Cynthia. And so I looked at the photographs side by side, and she said, this is the actress that, that, that you know we've been talking to about this. And I could see it. And I was very interested in the fact that Cynthia wasn't famous, you know, that people didn't know her. Because I thought, yes. you know, I, at this moment, like, who in the world's going to play? Like, who, Except for this you... theater girl here. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I was all up in the theater. Yes, yeah. saw her. I've seen some bootlegged YouTubes. It's almost yeah. beautiful, the parallel. I mean, we don't know Harriet Tubman yes. to society, so yeah. Yeah, I thought, like, it's got to be fresh. It's got to be completely believable. Mm-hmm. You know, it can't be some star turn um, mm-hmm. where you're distracted by persona. It's got to really, really be a fresh face. And so I was very interested in her, but I didn't meet her for, I, I had said yes and was into my research mm-hmm. before I met her. And that was interesting because in doing the research, Harriet became very vivid to me. Mm-hmm. And so I had this image of this tiny, strong, powerful force of nature mm-hmm. um, who was an athlete, um, a singer, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> of West African descent. Yes. And so Cynthia walks into the Russian tea room where we, we are meeting, and there she is, you know, and I could see it. And even though Cynthia is obviously um, very glamorous, there was something inside of not just her physicality, which is almost perfect, right? She, they're almost this exact same height, mm-hmm. muscular, obviously, physicality. She's a marathon run- runner. Mm-hmm. But also her spirit. There's some, you know, very determined, very fiery, um, this beautiful kind of stubbornness. And, and mm-hmm. she's a force of nature. And so that's when I really, we hit it off also, which was very important. In fact, if we had not hit it off, <laughs> I would have had, you know, a big decision to make. Yeah. 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 Um, were you taken aback by some of the um, 
conversations that came out of the casting of Cynthia? And did you ever have a conversation with her during, you know, the promotion of the film as people were discussing uh, casting, you know, a non-American black woman in the role and sort of how people felt about maybe her perceptions of African-American actresses? I knew all of that mm-hmm. in the 85 seconds. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I knew it all. Um, so I was not taken a, you know, you can never kind of cease to be surprised by how big things get, um, you know, on the Internet. But no, I was prepared for it. And I think she was, too. And yet, of course, it, you know, was so big and so kind of ugly, you know. And I knew it. But I, I had a strong, strong feeling that she was the right person. And if I hadn't, like I said, I would have made a decision. But I had a a very spiritual connection with Harriet, with my research, and with Cynthia. It was a leap of faith for both of us. But I think that we can pull this off because um, I think I'm going to believe it. But the thing was, once we got on set from the very first day of shooting, I believed it, and I believed it every day. And and that's, you know, like what I tell my, my students, you know, when I'm teaching film, like, do you believe it? And I believed it. Of course, you know, spirituality and art, I feel, I think that uh, we've talked a bit about that before, just like the things of like astrology or even something, you know, like superfluous like that, just thinking of how that connects to stories. And it's it's nice seeing a through line of you being interested in a young black woman's connection with sort of spirituality and East Bayou, certainly, you know, Journey's character, um, Debbie Morgan's character. And then um, Diane Carroll. Diane Carroll, yes. Miss um, Dominique. Car- that's Dominique, one of the hardest RIPs in recent that, memory. That was yeah. very sad for me. Yeah. Yes, uh, grew up on her. Um, is is that spirituality just something that's very important to you? Is there a reason why you feel it's important to imbue the black characters in your work with um, this spirituality? Like I said, I don't really think in terms of it's important. It's mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's me. It's my family. So it, in some ways, it's very personal, but but also it's my influences. So my influences were also Toni Morrison and, and Gabriel Garcia Marquez and, yeah. mm-hmm. and you know, um, yes. literature that use magic realism. Of course. But my family, that's my family, very yeah. much like, oh, I had a vision. And, you know, so, yeah. they, I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. that, that, East Bayou gave me very, yeah. like, August Wilson vibes, like Joe Turner's coming <laughs> Yeah, gone, exactly. Like, you know, yeah. yeah. Oh, good call. Yeah. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, I think it's very black. Yes. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's one of the things that... That I bring that is also what Tony, you know, brought is um, just blackness, like unabashed Southern blackness, you know. Yeah. The Oscars have, I think, provoked this other conversation where certain people suggested that Cynthia Erivo was nominated at, for instance, Lupita Nyong'o and us was not nominated because the majority of voters in the Academy still white are familiar with the Harriet narrative. And therefore, there's a comfort level with nominating someone in that role since it's important to American history, so it's an important role. Did you find that the conversation about this nomination was limiting or disappointing? Yeah, I don't really, really listen to the conversation. Um, I do look at what happens. Mm -hmm. But you've got to understand these are individual voters who just go and vote. And so I kind of look at it. um, we, We do, as every studio does, you do tons of screenings for that body of voters. And with all of our screenings, what I learned is that people would come up to me in tears, whether they're black or white, and kind of throw themselves in my arms and and, and love the movie. So I assumed that maybe some Academy members were like audience members, you know, with our A-plus cinema score, and they just loved it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I try not to, to take it absolutely cynically. The lack of diversity is disappointing 
all the time. And that's an ongoing conversation that I don't think any one year can correct. I mean, I think I think this is a huge mindset um, that has to be attacked. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, well, thank you for being here. Yeah, and, um, you, so you know, and, you know, honestly, just going from these stories that you've been able to tell us, as you said, unabashedly black, it, it's lovely to see this sort of depiction of whatever it may be. And by the way, the official Keep It Homework is for everyone to watch Eve's Bayou. Yes. Yeah. If you have not seen Eve's Bayou, that is Book Club's meeting American next Classic. week. Yes. As, <laughs> as we said before, Roger, who is a champion of it, in his review wrote that if this isn't nominated for Academy Awards, then the Academy's not paying attention. Mm. And we know now they did not pay attention. <laughs> so, um, you all should pay attention and watch Eve's Bayou. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. So Coming up, we're going to chat with Julissa Arce about American Dirt. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. And the award for first literary controversy of <laughs> the decade goes to American Dirt. Oh. Oprah's incredibly influential book club announced that Janine Cummins' new book, American Dirt, made the list. And the book was announced, I think we all realized, in a celebrity flurry. I first heard of the book and even the controversy surrounding it when I was seeing, like, MJ Rodriguez, Gina Rodriguez, <laughs> of course, Salma Hayat promoting the book on their Instagram. Yeah, Yalitza Aparicio. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I can't believe she got to Yalitza. I know. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we haven't seen her in a movie since Roma. We sure but, haven't. But Oprah found her. <laughs> <laughs> to recap the book, it is a... Contemporary migration story following a mother and son, uh, Lydia and Luca, desperate to escape Mexico and reach the U.S. after their entire family is gunned down by the cartel at a quinceañera. And surprise, it was written by a white woman, or was it, uh, <laughs> to get into this controversy, uh, I am excited to finally have um, Julissa Arce on the show. Hi. Hi, I'm so excited. I feel like I'm more excited than Tommy was when he first was on the show. <laughs> well, that's clinically Welcome. too excited. If you want to take it down <laughs> a little bit. I know. We're worried for you. It's probably a, it's probably a good thing that... Uh, you know, I'm not there in person because that might be that might have been too much for me. Yeah, <laughs> Tommy was too excited. We had to take him for a walk around the block after. <laughs> um, let's first get into this question of Janine. Is she white, Jalissa? Because I remember reports of her having written an essay saying that she was not Latinx, um, so she could not really speak to a perspective that wasn't white. But now people are talking about she's not white. So she herself has said 
that she is white. Like literally, she wrote this in a New York Times piece. Mm-hmm. I'm white, therefore I can't comment on issues of race. And you know, a few years later, she's written this book, which you know I know we'll get into it, and I'm like dying to. And now she says that she has a Puerto Rican grandmother, and therefore <laughs> is now really embracing her Latinx roots. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what, what people are finding problematic is that she has identified as being white. And now in order to promote this book, it seems very convenient to all of a sudden really embrace those Latinx roots. And I think the other piece that it's kind of annoying is both her and the publisher really putting out there that her husband, who's Irish, uh, had been undocumented. And I'm not saying like, yes, Irish, <laughs> un- undocumented Irish people exist. There's like 50,000 of them. Mm-hmm. Um who do exist, but the fact that she's kind of grasping and trying to grab all of these things in order to make it okay for her to have written this book, I think is what's really annoying and problematic. This long day's journey into 23 and Me. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. So, Jalissa, when you uh, got a copy of the book and started reading it, how long did it take you to realize, oh no, <laughs> et cetera? Honestly, the first scene. And let me just mm-hmm. make something really clear, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the first scene is about a quinceanera. I've written a piece for BuzzFeed News that gets really into this. But I love quinceaneras. They're like my favorite thing. I didn't never had a quinceanera, so like I am even more obsessed with them. But let me make something really clear. There are 16 people at this quinceanera, and they're listening to the radio. There is no Mexican family that would have 16 people at the quinceanera and be listening to the radio. <laughs> like, scene. I'm like, this would, you know, it would never happen. Like, we would at least have some, like, neighbors. People would have pitched in for a DJ. And, you know, this is supposed to be, like, a middle-class family. So just from, mm. like, the very beginning, I was like, oh, no, I am going to be in for a ride here. <laughs> I read the book really quickly um, because I just, I mean, I knew what was going to happen at the end. If anybody's thinking about reading it, just FYI, there's going to be some spoilers uh, in this conversation. Um, but from the, just, like, the very first page, I was like, this is not accurate. And I get that this is a, a fiction book, mm-hmm. not a real story, but it's also not fantasy, yeah. Yeah. Um, I had the same reaction. Um, I obviously didn't pick up on the specifics as you did. Um, I have been to a friend's quinceanera before, so I was shocked by the small amount of people who were at it. Um, but I read the book yesterday, and mm-hmm. I just want to get it out of the way. The book is badly written, too. Uh, <laughs> first and foremost. <laughs> first and foremost, it is... Worse than like an airport, like schlocky thriller. And the thing that sh- shocks me but the Ira, most. This is the grapes of our wrath. <laughs> uh, the thing that shocks me the most about it is I thought we'd moved past the point where you're writing in English and then when you put words in Spanish, you italicize them. Um, but that happens all over this book. And I feel like a different word is italicized in every sentence it's like and it's like it's just like sprinkled it's sort yeah. of like it's unnecessary you know mm-hmm. like the, the times when spanish is used is completely unnecessary it's like yeah. oh we were sitting in this back of this truck drinking a uh, refresco <laughs> so you could have just say you were drinking a soda you know <laughs> like yeah, why do you then need to use a spanish word and then when she should have used spanish words she didn't like there is a scene where uh luca is um is at the at the market and he asks for more sour cream for his tacos. And I'm like, first of all, no. Like that's when you would have used 
crema, yeah. which uh -huh. crema yeah. is not the same thing as sour cream. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, we don't put crema on our tacos. We put crema on tacos dorados, like a specific kind of taco. So again, like, it's just like where she chose to put Spanish words was just to kind of say, uh, look at me, you know, I know some Spanish words and I'm going to insert them here. And they're not even like, it, they're not like in Mexican Spanish, mm -hmm. um, which is another thing that really stood out to me. Like these, these words that I used are in Spanish, but they're not Mexican Spanish. And it's this like book Google is Translate set in Mexico. Spanish, yeah. The maybe wildest part too is they introduce the protagonist, Lydia, as mommy in the book. Mommy. Later she writes, um, mommy, her real name is Lydia, mm -hmm. but then they keep going back and forth in the book between Lydia and Mommy, and I'm like, just just use one fucking name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, the the adorning of extra stuff to make it seem Spanish. It reminds me of somebody mm -hmm. doing their like study abroad live journal. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, here are some words I've picked up for you guys reading along at home. Someone... The other thing that was like super annoying about the book is so so a few things. One is, uh, you know, Lydia somehow you know she owns this store and uh, she speaks perfect English as does her son. Even though and they learn from YouTube, that's like what we learn is that they <laughs> learned English, perfect English from YouTube. And of course, there's like the bad cartel boss who uh, is also like super suave. You know, we may, we're made to believe that he's like this super suave, complicated guy who goes into this bookstore and him and Lydia, you know, kind of fall in love because of their love of books. And by the way, they're reading uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez in English. Which, like, if you speak Spanish, why would you ever read his work <laughs> in English? You know, like, there's just like all of these things. And then then there are these two other characters who are um, Honduran uh, migrants. And one of them is described as being so beautiful that it is a mistake of biology that she's so beautiful. Well, that's weird. And yeah. I'm like, what? It's just the way that these characters are minimized. Mm -hmm. And they're portrayed as these poor little victims that can't do anything for themselves. And, you know, Lydia goes through this, like, big journey to try to make it to the U.S., even though she's like a middle-class Mexican. And when she gets to the Mexico City airport, instead of just getting on a plane to anywhere, because by the way, Mexican citizens can pretty much go anywhere in the world except the U.S. without a visa. Like she could have mm -hmm. flown to Canada. She could have flown to France, like anywhere, because she had tens of thousands of dollars at her disposal. But the author really was trying to make this characters fit in this like plot that was a carefully designed obstacle course and we knew what was going to happen at the end like it was so predictable what was going to happen at the end mm -hmm. and to talk about why janine said she wrote this book um she said that she basically wanted to fix the american view of faceless brown people who were coming into the country right and she said I was worried that my privilege would make me blind to certain truths, that I'd get things wrong, as I may well have. I worried that yeah, as I a non-migrant <laughs> and non-Mexican, I had no business writing a book set almost entirely in Mexico, set entirely among migrants. I wished someone slightly browner than me would write it. But then I thought, if you're a person who has the capacity to be a bridge, why not be a bridge? So I began. 
I'm not comfortable with her identifying as a bridge, first of all. <laughs> and I'm also very frustrated with her not recognizing that other Latinx and Chicanx authors yes. have been writing about this. They just don't get the, the airtime. Did you Google? <laughs> Truly. <laughs> we don't get seven-figure advances to write this book. I mean, I have written two books about my real-life experience of being a migrant, being undocumented in, in the U.S., and, you know, she also then thanks authors that she has read. So it's like, girlfriend, you are not inventing something here. Mm-hmm. You know, there have been brown people who have written this book. And the other thing that is really problematic about this is that, you know, this has been hailed as the book that people right. should read if they want to understand the immigrant experience, like the book, right? Mm-hmm. But then she also made very specific choices in the book to be apolitical to not take yeah. a political stance. So when she describes, there's this, there's another scene where um, the, 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 the little group of immigrants that uh, Lydia is with, they get kidnapped by the cartel and she's able to get off, but the other people aren't. And the comandante tells them, well, don't worry about those people because they're bad people anyways. They're rapists mm-hmm. and they're dealing drugs. And I'm like, hmm, where have I heard that? before. Uh, uh, But then as a narrator, she does nothing to correct those very racist words. But Mm -hmm. later on in the book, where the radicalized liberal tells us of a town in Arizona where a vigilante killed uh, a migrant, then she corrects it when it's Americans that are being criticized. Then she says, but there are good people who live there too. Which really echoes sort of like the good people on both sides mm. uh, a story, you know. So there's just all these choices that she consciously made to not get into the real issues that immigrants face. And therefore, she fails to do what she says she wanted to do. You know, if we take her at her word, she wanted to humanize immigrants. Mm-hmm. But she could not have possibly humanized immigrants when she shied away from taking a political stance and really letting people know through her book, through her work of fiction, what are the real problems and issues that immigrants face every single day trying to come here and also when they get here. Mm -hmm. I will say that, you know, this literary brown face really sort of reminds me that this is a thing that happens. Uh, this this became such a big controversy, but um, it reminded me mostly of a book I had read in school and revisited, um, a 20s Harlem Renaissance novel by um, Carl Van Vechten. He was a white man who sort of enjoyed hanging out in Harlem. He was the literary executor of Gertrude Stein. Mm. He wanted to write a book about the Harlem experience. He didn't want to write a book about lynchings and Negroes in the South. He wanted to write, you know, like the Harlem that he enjoyed to get people to come and visit the city and just like really realize the culture that was going on in this jazz age to get people to read the book. And and he was encouraged not to do this. He named the book Nigger Heaven. Uh, (laughs) County County Cullen, a friend, uh, was like... Maybe don't do that. Mm. Uh, Even his dad was like, don't do that. Mm -hmm. So many people in his life saying, don't do that. He went ahead with it anyway and then included a poem of counties at the end of it, which was gross. But it's this phrase to him. um, It's a term that means like um, the up rafters, you know, sort of like the cheap seats in a theater where the black people would have to sit while they looked down at the white people. That was what the term Mm nigger heaven meant but um it was really salacious and it divided people in harlem and it was 
he talked so much about how he wanted to be this bridge, etc. But it really just sort of had a gross title. And the story itself, you know, it opens with someone called the Scarlet Creeper, who's like the <laughs> pimp of Harlem. And if you don't know what creeper means, there's a footnote because his book at the end has a glossary of unusual Negro terms for people to look back and read, you Mm -hmm. know? So, like, it felt a lot like that. Someone being like, I am the authority. I can help people sort of understand what this culture is about. But the way that you go about it is clumsy and offensive. I'm interested in the reception of that book because sometimes people who are like, I'm going to be a conduit for this really important and refreshing narrative, Mm -hmm. sometimes if it's received well and then the image of those people is actually elevated, Mm -hmm. you can bolster that person and that author. However, when I think about what's going on right now with Cummins' book and what she's written is that the implications of this is a even worse image for undocumented Mexican immigrants. So I think the answer is like even in the Harlem Renaissance, white people were patrons for black authors. Mm -hmm. White people supported black authors and allowed them the space and time to give the real firsthand experiences. If Janine really cared about, you know, supporting these voices, she would be supporting a Jalissa Arce. She'd be supporting a Reina Grande. She'd be supporting these authors that really have firsthand experience about this. You know, in terms of like this this sort of idea that she could have been a bridge, um, to be honest, I don't think this is the book that's going to build a bridge. And in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, it's also erasing the bridges that so many of us have tried to to build. And so many of the stereotypes Types that we, that we in in my community in our community like really try to push back against right this idea that Mexico's bad and violent and there's all these cartels and then America is good because that ultimately is what this book is about Mexico's bad America's good and as soon as you put your foot in America you're going to be granted this freedom and this safety that you've been longing for when you know we know that. Every single day, people of color in America have to fight for that freedom. It's not just something that you that you get when yeah. you get here. You know, Acapulco, which is where this book um, first starts, is painted at this as this like horrible place. Like, let me just tell you, my family goes to vacation in Acapulco like all the time. You know, it's a tourist, it's a thriving place. Like, does violence exist in Mexico? Yes, of course, but violence exists everywhere. Listen, I mean, the show Acapulco Heat in the nineties. <laughs> Painted a very beautiful city. Okay, (laughs) nothing like Janine's book. I I mean, like I can only say, like from, I've had certain experiences where, like, I read something that has, for instance, or or I'll see a movie that has queer content in it. But then there's this other anxiety that occurs when you realize it's not for you. Like it's not, it's treating you like you're not in the theater. For example, Uh, the thing that comes to mind immediately is that horrible movie Get Hard a few years ago with Mm. um, Kevin Hart Uh, and Will Ferrell. And there's a there's a scene where they go to a gay brunch and Kevin Hart instructs Will Ferrell to basically get blown at this brunch to like learn what it is to mix it up with gay people. It's like, not only is this like an insane scene, but you don't think I'm watching it. Clearly like no gay guy weighed in on this. That's like a, a specific feeling of like, I'm kind of a part of what you're talking about, but also you didn't think of me at all. Right. I mean, it almost feels like, the inheritance, uh, mm-hmm. which was written by a gay man, but mm-hmm. uh, that is the latest play on Broadway that opened in the West End. That is twenty hours long for no damn reason. Has two parts, like Angels in America, but largely has white actors in it, and you know, most of them straight on the Broadway um, show, and feels like it's written for straight people to sort of understand gay life. But that is also different because Matthew Lopez is, you know 
what next and um, is gay. So he's writing from that perspective. And I think that's something that invites a good conversation. You know, it's someone mm-hmm. writing their culture and maybe you think that they get it wrong, but at least they're writing from their culture, right? It's not writing the other, so to speak. Um, I'm reminded of um, when Alexander Chi was asked at the Breadloaf Writers Conference, um, do you have any advice for writing about people who don't look like you? And the three things he said were, one, why do you want to write from this character's point of view? <laughs> Two, do you read writers from this community currently? And three, why do you want to tell this story? And thinking of American Dirt and even what you explained about Janine's history, I would love to read a book about her identifying as white, discovering that she had a Puerto Rican grandmother, and also writing about the experience of her Irish, undocumented husband. Um that sounds like a much more interesting book that we have not read as uh-huh. well. Right. I've written two books and I know how painful it is and the process you go through for the book to get to a shelf, right? Like the number of people who edit it and look at it and give you feedback and give you comments. And then I'm like, how is it possible that this book made it all the way to Oprah's book club? <laughs> like who approved that? You know, like who were all the people that said yes? Like, and, and, you know, now you're having celebrities having to backtrack. Like, Salma Hayek issued an apology. Gina Rodriguez even, like, just deleted the post. But it's like, why didn't you just, why didn't somebody on your team alert you to this? There's an aggravating layer to this of, in order for the backlash to occur, you had to stand up against what is, like, this wall of endorsements. Like, before yeah. it even got to you, there was, like, this, like, they had steeled themselves by finding the Salma Hayek's of the world, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. Which brings to question the idea of these endorsements in the first place, right? You know, it's, you are putting this book out there, and you're having all of these um, Latinx celebrities, you know, sort of promote it. I bet none of them had read it, you know? Yeah, I mean, that Selma Hayek said as much. She's like, uh, you know, apologize. I didn't read this. I was excited because uh, the letter that came with it said it was about a Mexican woman. And so I got excited. Um, But yeah, many of them have not read it. And (laughs) it shows. (laughs) Yeah. The only person who I can confirm was sort of reading it was MJ Rodriguez was reading it and then was responding to comments on her Instagram page being like, Oh, my God, I didn't realize that this was such a mess. Um, And you were seeing sort of in real time her realizing what the fuck up this was. Yeah, and I actually commented on her Instagram post and Mm -hmm. um, was just kind of saying, you know, as a Mexican immigrant who was undocumented, um, you know, I just ask you to listen to our perspective and to take that into account as you promote the book because this has caused a lot of pain for people like me and for people in in the Latinx community. Yeah, Yeah. and I will say lastly that Obviously, the book has now been taken up by people who are calling themselves against cancel culture, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like every time you call out something nowadays, which is offensive, there's always going to be people on one side who are like, no, now we have to protect this book from the mobs of people who want to stop us from reading literature, right? Yeah. Read it. You know, nobody's <laughs> yeah. stopping you from reading. I mean, girl, like nobody's canceling you. You got a seven-figure advance. Like, <laughs> you know, like go enjoy your money. Just like <laughs> at least just listen to the conversations. There's a, there's been a lot of her events that have been canceled. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we're trying to do. Like if you're saying 
I want to have a conversation. I want to open a bigger dialogue about this and like be prepared to have those conversations, like be prepared to answer questions from people who show up to your events and ask you, do you think that this book is problematic? Why did you make these choices that you made in the book? Like if you want to have conversations, please have them. We're open to having those conversations and creating a bigger dialogue. Wasn't that your purpose for writing this book and mm -hmm. now you're not only canceling the events but saying there are safety concerns implying you know that this brown mob is going to come and like riot your book events like we're not going to do that and if you are concerned about that then like get security I've had to get security for some of my book mm -hmm. events because I get emails from people that tell me you know they wish I had cancer <laughs> yeah I mean if you want it to be a bridge you know you can't put a toll on the bridge, right? <laughs> yeah, um, right. You, can, yeah, you yeah. can't just be like, oh, these Billy Goat Gruffs are... <laughs> I was wondering how far you'd go with yeah, the bridge I metaphor, and you went right to Aesop. <laughs> I wanted more. Uh, you know, you. it seems like she wanted to be this bridge and create this conversation, but she only wanted the good type of conversation, right? Right. You obviously... Right, there's... the one where people were going to be like, thank you so much for yes. giving us a face. Yeah, um, Oprah. Well, I got a face, and it's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it is very be It's a very beautiful face. Uh, Thank you. Oprah did respond saying that uh, she's aware of the controversy, and when they have the book club conversation, she promises that the conversation will go deeper, um, whatever that means. This is sort of unfortunate, side note, because this comes a week into Oprah making two sort of big blunders. Mm. She also pulled out of the documentary On the Record, which was about the women who suffered sexual abuse at the hands of Russell Simmons. And reports coming from Sundance while I was there was that the movie was very good, searing, and they don't know why she pulled out. And she hasn't really sort of been specific about why she decided to remove her name from it, saying that there were just inconsistencies. And... That coupled with this about what sort of compelled her to be involved in this book. It's like, did you read the whole thing? Mm -hmm. Did you somehow miss what other people who are reading it miss? Because I feel like even as a non-Mexican person, I'm reading this book and I'm like, this is messy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the other thing that I think has really um, come into the spotlight is the fact that uh, in, in 20 plus years of the Oprah Book Club, she has never picked a book written by a Mexican-American. That is so only, interesting. Wow. wow. Yeah. And, wow. And, only, and only three books that are um, Latinx authors, two of whom, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Isabel Allende are like international superstars. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, that, I think, uh, has also been a point of pain for, um, for Latino authors because we struggle so much to get visibility and to get access. If you look at children's book, uh, only like, less than 6% of characters in children's books are Latinx. Bunnies and trucks have a 24% representation. So you're more likely to find a truck than you are to find a little Mexican girl in a book. Mm. He's fucking I Velveteen don't mean to laugh. I, I, just, I just pictured a truck looking at me like, here I am. <laughs> truck driving by Julissa. <laughs> beep, beep. <laughs> Well, thank you for joining us on Keep It, finally. Mm -hmm. Yes. Can I just say one more thing mm -hmm. before we go? Um, so in the book, early in the book, you know, we learned that Lydia is, um, she owns a bookstore. And in the book, she says that she has stocked her bookstore with books she loves, as well as books she isn't crazy about, but knew would sell. 
Mm. I think the author was trying to tell us something. Mm. 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 Cheese man. Let's do it. Cheese man. <laughs> that is Cheese barely coded. real this morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and make sure y'all read uh, Jalissa's article in BuzzFeed on American Dirt. And read my books, and too. Her books, read yeah, her books. Know, that's read her books. Read my books. That's the only good thing I think that comes out of this controversy is now that we can all refocus on other Latinx writers. So here we go. Yeah. Jalissa's two yeah. books. Thank you so much for having me on this. Um, of, of course. I'm really glad you, you are having this conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you for being on. Uh, it was so nice to finally have you on. When we're back... Keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Keep It. Aida, we'll let you go first. Okay. Well... First of all, as we all know, we are in the thick of an impeachment trial, which I have stopped paying attention to long ago because it's too much for me to process. I'll come back in a few days. However, on the Senate floor, our senators are thirsty. They're very, very thirsty. They're dehydrated. Dehydrated. <laughs> and all they have to drink, and they are allowed to drink, is water and milk. Now, the reason that they're allowed to drink milk comes from this like very antiquated 1960s rule that was like, oh, sometimes they get ulcers. So they need something to calm their ulcers so they can have water or they can have milk. But it's 2020 and none of us are baby calves and need to be drinking pus publicly on television. <laughs> sure. And I'm not the kind of person that's like, don't drink milk. Don't drink milk. It's more so have the shame to do that in the privacy of your own home. Like, that's disgusting. Little to my surprise. Ted Cruz is sitting there valiantly with his cup of milk <laughs> and his disgusting beard and his disgusting thick little milk mustache at midnight. Drinking milk at midnight. There's so many problems with this. I don't even know where to start. Nothing could be more haunting than drinking milk at midnight. Fucking disgusting. I'm always confused. Especially if you're mayonnaise like Ted Cruz. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm always confused by people who, especially in like TV and movies, they always get their kids like a warm glass of milk oh, at night. I don't want that. Don't Na even get me started. Na name a worse series of four words. Warm glass of milk. Ugh. Oh, I used to I go love hot frosted flakes. <laughs> <laughs> Every sleepover I went to in Nebraska would end with like, let's go microwave some some milk. And it was literally the most disgusting thing. I I'm gagging. Oh uh, yeah, are we like it. Willa Cather characters? Who the yeah. fuck wants more, more milk? Let's go malt some berries. Yeah. Ugh. So that's it. Just I hate Ted Cruz, one, and I hate milk. So those two pairings is fucking just Ugh. My recurring joke about Ted Cruz is that he looks like someone tried to make a Josh Hutcherson cake on Nailed It. Stop. Just the face is like slightly time. Jo like did Josh Hutcherson. Yeah. Mm. That same kind of square face with eyebrows that are just like, you know, uh, uh, Sam the Eagle bricks. Mm -hmm. As somebody who is routinely called Sam the Eagle, I can say that. He's really just a person without any sense of awareness, but acts like he does. Like, remember when he was joking about being the Zodiac Killer after people were calling him the Zodiac Killer? Oh, well, he's down. Yeah. Yeah. I was reminded of a BuzzFeed video that he did years ago where he auditioned, in quotes, for The Simpsons, and it was just him doing Simpsons impersonations for BuzzFeed video. It's one of the grossest things I've ever seen. Is Ugh. that still on the internet? Please it's still on it's the internet. It's still on the internet. I have to go watch it now, and I want it to have a good day. 
One thing I definitely never want to hear is just three people monologuing about The Simpsons. I just feel like it's, it, it, I like The Simpsons, it's their religion. And now that Ted Cruz has done it, now none of you can do it. Yeah, he ruined no. it for you. Sorry. Mm. Well, what is your keep it this week, Lewis? I specifically kept the topic of my keep it away from my uh, esteemed co-workers um, so I could spring it on them now. The secret keep password it, is. Yes. Keep it to Netflix is the circle. You guys are messed no! up. Guys, it's bad. No! It is bad. Shut it, shut it down. Shut the whole keep it down. I thought I was having an honest conversation with professionals. You are common horse thieves. <laughs> no. no. This is a show about people sitting in hotel rooms speaking text messages out loud. Yes. It's a thought experiment. Oh, my God. The thought is I'm going to sleep. <laughs> It's supposed to be dystopian. It has more to it. It's fun. All the characters are great. What is wrong with you? I will say by the end, I was a little annoyed. By the, the 12th circle. hour? Because it's a 12-episode show. Yeah, it's not that long. Jesus I'm, Christ. I am currently in the midst of a new season of Love Island, which will be on for 20 weeks. You need a sanitarium. What Guys, do you not like about it? Here is what the show is about. It's eight people in different rooms of an apartment building. And by the way, they're not acute apartments to look like. I'm looking at the Z Gallery right here. <laughs> Secondly... <laughs> It's people who, two of them are faking who they are, and the whole show tries to make a big deal out of the idea that some of them might be catfishing, but who cares? You're all just text on a screen. You could say you're Oprah and I won't care. (laughs) They keep trying to make it into like, some people are deceptive. Well, everybody's deceptive. You're all trying to win a game. It's like saying on Big Brother that somebody is a deceptive contestant. Well, right, they all have to lie. They they don't establish the stakes in somebody not being authentic. It's not about being deceptive. It's about your ability to hide how deceptive you are. You know, mm. that's the fun game for me to watch. I feel that's like season two will have better <laughs> gameplay okay. from people. Because yeah. I felt like I did feel towards the end that everyone was being a little bit too nice. Uh, I really enjoyed when Bill went home and he sort of called them all out on being too fake and nice mm-hmm. with each other. Yeah. Like, this is a game. <laughs> it also just, these people, I would describe them as unsmart. Uh, the entire time it was people being like, I'll put a winky face at the end of that text. Just like the sheer level of mind numbing, plot stagnated <laughs> BS going on this show. Maybe the dumbest person was the guy at the end with his mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also seemed racist. Yeah. They did not like Rebecca for some reason. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. I will agree that I did not like the circle at the end. The finale was very surreal. Mm -hmm. I get that the original British show had an audience at the premiere and then at elimination episodes, but this all aired on Netflix. So who was in that crowd at the end? when Michelle Buteau is doing this live show for the finale. She is talking to an audience. We are hearing an audience. We never see it. Yeah. No, that that makes no sense. And also, by the way, Michelle Buteau underutilized in this show, I felt. Truly. She She was supposed to give like sort of like uh, VO about about what was happening on the show with certain jokes sprinkled in, but it always felt too clean and too, like like she wasn't allowed to riff at all. And it's like, if you're going to hire Michelle Buteau, I mean, let her do the work she's supposed to be here to do. The only person she was truly mean to was Alex. Yeah. And I appreciated it. (laughs) You know who I liked at the beginning of the show? Sammy. I really Mm. liked her. Yeah. That was. I think she's the only person I was like, oh, okay. See, I was watching from the outside looking in. I wasn't really trying to connect to these people. If, mm-hmm. you, if you buy into the fact that it's goofy and it's a game and let it be playing in the background while you just fall in love with the characters, then how far did you get in? Five episodes. Mm. Okay. I well, hated Shubham by the end. 
Just because oh, interesting. he, he was so smart and playing tactically at the beginning. And then at the end, he, he spoiler alert, at the end, he lost mm-hmm. to Joey because he was obsessed with being Joey's friend and marked him so high. And it's like, bitch, you would have won if you would have put Joey at the bottom. Yeah. Ooh, that happened so on a season. Of, that happened on an episode, a uh, season of Big Brother. Once. Yeah. Somebody could have won mm-hmm. except Derek from yeah. season, I'm um, sorry, 16. Whatever Derek season one, he would have lost had that hot guy who got second done the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, anyway, I'm in the market for a show about social media and diplomacy and lying, etc. I just didn't think these people sitting in their rear window apartments all day <laughs> moaning at each other was it. <laughs> My keep it this week is to Terry Crews. Okay. Listen, we all remember when Terry Crews came out about his sexual harassment uh, and people were very supportive of him, especially being a black man talking about being assaulted. And a lot of black women came to support him, Mm -hmm. particularly Gabrielle Union being one of them. And he tweeted out how much he loved that women like Gabrielle and Nikanoni Rose, et cetera, were supporting him, that black women were supporting him in this incident where there was a lot of conversation online about how he was a man, he should have dealt with it, um, people making sort of like homophobic jokes as well while he was talking about his incident, et cetera. Flash forward to now where Gabrielle Union has talked about her exit from America's Got Talent, and she was talking about all the racism behind the scenes that she experienced. Terry Crews was also part of America's Got Talent, has now publicly come out and said that he didn't experience any racism, which means it had to have not happened. Uh, And when he was called out for the fact that people believed him and supported him, including Gabrielle, during his situation, he doubled down by being like, the only woman that I need to um, be true to is Rebecca, my wife. Everyone else can be protected by their partners or their family members. And I thought the answer was really bullshit. Uh, one, the idea that women are only supposed to be protected by if they have a partner. Mm-hmm. Oh, paternalism uh, doesn't speak to right? you? Yeah. Uh, and and it's, it's just so sad seeing this disconnect from something that literally happened to him a year ago and not being able to see how he's um, really being awful here. Yeah, I think it also reminds me of the fact that the response to his um, admittance of what happened to him was homophobia. And now his response is internalized misogyny that is still running so rampant in the black community. Like, this doesn't shock me at all. Yeah. Terry Crews, I mean, he needs Jesus. He needs help. Supported by black (laughs) women last year. And now he's literally throwing a black woman under the bus so he can keep his paycheck. Yeah. And just black men cherry picking their activism as far as where and who they support. It's a pattern that I can't stop but notice. I also just feel like that text is like a roundabout way of saying, I'm not doing a bad thing. I have a wife. Yes. I mean, the the tweet itself is insane. There is only one woman on earth I have to please. Her name is Rebecca. <laughs> He's talking about the book, Rebecca. Yes. Last <laughs> yeah. night, Love he, it. Last night he dreamt he went to Mandalay <laughs> again. <laughs> Not my mother, my sister, my daughters, or co-workers. I will let their husbands, boyfriends, partners take care of them. Rebecca gives me wings. All caps, wings. Was this a Red Bull yeah. Commercial, yeah. Uh, also, 
The only woman on earth I have to please is Rebecca, my wife. He points out not my mother, my sister, my daughters, or coworkers. What? Every other woman in my life, fuck them. Who is supposed to they defend have, your They daughters? have partners or boyfriends so they can support. Cool stance. <laughs> what? I want to know you. Ugh. Uh, yeah, it's just really disappointing because I felt like we talked about Terry Crews a lot last year, mm-hmm. uh, and we were so supportive of him without obviously knowing the specifics of the case because in situations like this, it often becomes a he said, she said situation, right? And um, when he was having the stance that you should believe people when they come out about things that have happened to them, just to see him just sort of like trample over Gabrielle, who he was working with, is really gross. And now we have to think about America's Got Talent again, which is an insult to who I am (laughs) and how I spend my time. Uh, Anyway, uh, I want to thank uh, Casey Lemons for joining us today. Love you, Casey. And I want to thank Jalissa Arce for joining us as well. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about American Dirt. Don't go read it. (laughs) (laughs) But go read Jalissa's books. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. It's Caroline like the princess, the one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian, for filming and editing our video content every week. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats, like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate (laughs) is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy.